From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. It has many causes, and it's often embarrassing. We're talking about urinary incontinence, and just living with it is not the only option. Absolutely. You know, some are embarrassed and some just think, well, there's no help. They've been told by their doctors there's nothing that can be done. It can be very difficult, but yeah, there is hope available. That's why I always tell people, I can guarantee you we'll figure this thing out and the odds are we'll make you better. Also on the program, winter vomiting virus. Its name pretty much says it all. We'll hear about norovirus infection and how you can protect yourself and your family. And obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, affects more than 3 million children and adults in the U.S. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Urinary incontinence, the loss of bladder control. It's embarrassing, it's distressing, and you know what it can affect just about anyone at pretty much any age. And it can be a symptom of an underlying condition or it can be a problem all by itself. There are many causes of incontinence from having given birth to certain neurological disorders to the aging process. But the good news is there are several effective treatments available for incontinence, so there's no need to suffer in silence. Here to talk about the causes and treatments of urinary incontinence is Mayo Clinic urologist Dr. Daniel Elliott. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Elliott. Good to see you. Thank you. Nice to be here. So this is an interesting area of practice for you. You're a urologist, so you take care of, of men and women who have problems of the urinary tract, but you sort of focus on incontinence, don't you? That's correct. I'm technically a reconstructive urologist. It means I'm kind of fixing things that are broken. And so one of the common things that break with time is bladder control. And it can be a devastating problem for some people. Mostly women? Mostly women. However, a large part of my practice is also in male incontinence, dealing like after prostatectomies. Prostate cancer, one of the most common cancers there is. So it's a, in men, it's a, it can be a devastating problem as well. What is the main causes? You just listed a couple of them, but are those the main causes? Well, it's, it, let's break it up into men and women. Okay. So first of all, for women, you kind of mentioned it in your introduction there, uh, aging, childbirth, hysterectomy, surgeries such as that. Then for men, primarily it's due after being treated for prostate cancer or benign prostate growth with that what's called the TERP, the rotorooter of the prostate. And as a result of treatment, they can have large volumes of leakage, total incontinence, which as you can imagine can be uh, significantly impacting upon their quality of life. Women who have had more children, the more children, the more likely you are to be incontinent later on or not necessarily? To a, to a certain point. The first pregnancy, if you compare it to a woman with no children, <clears throat> with one who has had children, no question the first birth is the most significant. After about three children, it just doesn't really matter at that point. And for uh, men, uh, I assume that this is uh, an aging problem because we all tend, the prostate tends to get bigger as you age. And so uh, mostly older men too, correct? Yes. My average age is probably about 65, 70. It's in that age group that will have prostate problems. You know, usually you don't see it in younger men. It's, it can happen. It's rare. It's the usually the older one who's undergone the surgery. So you usually don't see it in the quite elderly, 85, 90. And prostate surgeries usually aren't done in that age group. Are there different kinds of incontinence, and it is important for you to know what, what's the underlying cause? It's essential to know. 
uh, as I'm teaching residents all the time about this, you have to know the diagnosis. Once you know the diagnosis, then you can go based to uh, do the various different treatments. So you have to know, is it an overactive bladder? That can happen in men and women with sudden urge they have to go to the bathroom. They drink large amounts of coffee, <laughs> and there's sudden urge they have to go. The treatment for that is completely different than the treatment for when they cough, lift, uh, go from a sitting to a standing position and leak out. That's called stress incontinence. So you have to know the diagnosis. From there, you can go to the treatment. And how do you do the evaluation? How do you figure out what's wrong? Ah, Great question. In this modern day and age where we have all this technology, CAT scans, MRIs, all these fancy equipment, it really comes down to the old-fashioned talking directly to a patient. You have to ask them certain questions. The most accurate way to diagnose overactive bladder, that sudden urge, is just asking questions. It's free. takes a couple minutes, and we can figure it out. For stress incontinence, it's the old-fashioned, just a physical exam. Do they leak when they cough and bear down? It's very, very simple, but it is very important. And one of the things that we can do by just talking to the patient, we can save thousands and thousands of dollars of needless studies, which get done a lot. So, so do are patients able to figure this out themselves then? I mean, can they just come in and say, here's the problem? Yes. In this modern era, people get on the Internet. They put in their symptoms. The problem with that becomes they ty- diagnosed, uh, they, they type in urgency of incontinence, and then it shows up various different spinal tumors, which are incredibly <laughs> rare. Um, but, yeah, you know, a person who's really paying attention to their body, really listening to things, looks on the, the websites at good, reputable uh, websites, can frequently figure it out. Yeah, if you had to say, you know, if the two camps are overactive bladder versus stress, uh, incontinence. I would think you'd even even I could figure that out, Dr. Shives. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and if you talk to your doctor long enough and he listens, he'll be able to figure it out. That's true if they have the time to listen, things like that. But then it can get a little more complicated. You know, usually at Mayo we see these rare things come through, but there could be also what's called overflow incontinence. Much more common in the elderly, much more common in men, can occur in women, can be a side effect of medication, uh, low back problems, lumbar disc disease, where the bladders don't push very well. So subsequently, they have the symptoms that are identical to uh, overactive bladder. And if you treat it as an overactive bladder, you actually make it worse by medications. So that's when we get involved. You know, the most aggressive study I ever do is just what's called a bladder ultrasound. And the office takes us literally 30 seconds, to make sure that the bladder is empty. That's the one thing the patient would not be able to figure out on their own. Otherwise, you can pretty much make the diagnosis based on on history, uh, maybe a physical exam, but you don't need any more sophisticated tests. I mean, you don't have to look in the bladder, et cetera, to figure out what's wrong. The most sophisticated thing we need is a a good brain to, to think through and an individual patient who can interact with us. We do have some people who have head trauma, Alzheimer's, and then it's very difficult for us to figure it out because they can't communicate to us. There's not a test you can do that will tell you that it's overactive bladder, stress incontinence, et cetera. It's based on the history. That That is correct. There is a study called a Eurodynamics, which is very rarely needed. Uh, a good history can take that place. And what uh, the stress incontinence is the most common, I presume, that you see? Actually, overactive bladder is the most common. Really? Again, that's the biggest one affected by age. Just I always say is, as you age, as the heart and lungs age, low back, shoulders wear out, well, so does the bladder. And when the bladder ages, it becomes unstable and gives sudden contractions. So if you look at the overall percentage of people we see, overactive bladder is the most common. 
the most severe and uh, impact on quality of life is the stress incontinence because usually larger volume leakage. We were talking about pregnant ladies and mm-hmm. how pregnancy affects uh, incontinence. Is it does pregnancy lead to the stress incontinence more than or the overactive bladder? Pregnancy is usually due to overactive bladder. Oh, okay. The pressure placed, now that's just the pregnancy, that's not the delivery. Okay. So uh, with the pregnancy, there's just pressure put on the bladder. Now, interestingly, uh, in the United States, we're dealing with obesity, so we have seen men come in with big bellies, okay, mimicking pregnancy. So obesity is directly related to overactive bladder as well. Our guest, urologist Dr. Dan Elliott, we've uh, figured out that incontinence uh, is, a, is a problem for both men and women. Uh, Dr. Elliott has also told us that you can make the diagnosis based on the uh, history, and rarely do you need sophisticated, expensive tests. We need to take a break, but when we come back, we'll find out how Dr. Elliott treats these patients, both men and women. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our guest is urologist and incontinence expert, Dr. Dan Elliott. We now know that it affects both men and women, and there isn't a, actually an overabundance of women. Hold on just a second, though. Dr. Elliott, settle a bet here between Dr. Shives and myself. <laughs> he thinks that this is just typically a problem for women. Now, you did mention men with prostate issues have problems with incontinence, but is this a quote-unquote woman-only issue? Well, I didn't say Woman only, but anyway, we got fifty cents on this. So oh, make sure you issue. get the right 50 answer. Cents, huh? Yeah, <laughs> overactive bladder, probably pretty much equal incidence in men and women. Overactive bladder is that sudden urge to go, race to the bathroom, uh, urgency, frequency of urination, even and, and an age problem. In an age problem, yeah. correct. Okay. That is a a wear and tear issue on the body. Now, stress incontinence, uh, because pregnancy and delivery is the main or one of the most common factors in that, women are going to have more problem with it, a more uh, frequent problem. Okay. That the the men who have it, it can also be a very psychologically damaging because they feel alone. The number of times I in my office will say, men will come in and say, I'm alone. I'm the only one with this problem. I'm embarrassed. They don't talk to anybody about it. So it it can be, uh, I uh, never underestimate the impact upon the male as far as this problem goes. So with, when it comes to... I think I was right. Double or nothing (laughs) next time. (laughs) If overactive bladder and it's even 50-50 split down the middle, why is it that Dr. Shives thought this is just for women? Is it just that we don't, men don't want to talk about having incontinence? I Men. Don't, I don't know how to answer that question. <laughs> uh, what was Dr. Shives thinking? I don't know. No one knows um, that. I, I think, uh, as uh, I've been a male 22 years now, I think the male psyche does not want to talk about this as much. It's embarrassing. Uh, it's not uncommon with men with stress and conscience. They cry in my office, which is understandable mm-hmm. because they're devastated by this and they have no one they can talk to. And women go and, to each other and seek out the social support. And I think so. I think the women, they heard from their mother that they had incontinence. They talk to their sisters. They have family members, church groups, you name it, where there's more interaction. There's TV commercials about leakage say, of urine. I've been thinking. It, I haven't seen any with men in them. No, and it's directed towards the women because I think there's, there's more of a market there. But the men feel alone. Again, I have the busiest practice of nation dealing with male incontinence. And almost every man comes in and says, there's somebody else with this. 
I said, oh, yeah, you're one of five or six today I'm seeing with us. <laughs> so it, it's, it's getting that awareness out there is critical for men. All right, so we all want to know, how do you fix this problem? Well, let's deal with overactive bladder, uh, which is, again, the sudden urge to, to go to the bathroom, racing to the bathroom. Okay, that, first and foremost, we have them try and avoid what's called dietary irritants. Coffee is the number one, nicotine with cigarette smoke, uh, stress, and obesity. Okay, all factors. Stress? Stress, yeah. Anything that's a stimulant. So caffeinated products are stimulant. Nicotine is a stimulant. Stress is a stimulant. And uh, the bladder just can be very sensitive to those. So that's when you talk with individuals. What What's bothering you? You know, what are you doing that this overactivity happens? So we try to do the very conservative things. Those are free and they work well. Okay. Next, a step up is medication called anticholinergics. Uh, there's multiple different types of them that work relatively well, can have side effects of dry mouth. Beyond that, we actually do Botox injections in the bladder. Seems like every specialty has Botox. Neurologists, orthopedic doctors, ophthalmologists, and even urologists do it. We inject Botox in the bladder. And, and how do you do that? Well, we with a person sedated, meaning sleepy, we have a little camera that goes through the urethra, the tube they urinate through, and we have a needle, and we inject into the muscle of the bladder. Hmm. And that works in about 85% of people who have failed everything else. Okay. It is wonderful. It's magical. The problem is it's going to be very expensive. And most insurance companies now cover it, but for a while, there they didn't. Is it also temporary? Temporary, yes. Okay. It lasts four to six months, which individuals who are really bothered by this, they don't care. They say, do it. Anybody who comes to me and says, well, I don't know if it's worth it, I know they don't have that big of a problem. Because the ones who are bothered by it, they don't care. They want it. We'll pay any price. Yeah. Beyond that, beyond the Botox injections, then you have interstem, which is nerve electrodes put in the back, help kind of block the nerves. Last thing, which we almost never do anymore, was called bladder augmentation surgery. We actually have big surgery, open up the, the abdomen, and enlarge the bladder by putting intestines on it. Very rare done that. I've done two maybe in the past 10 years. Okay, so every one of those treatments that you described is for an overactive bladder. Correct. All right, so then let's talk about stress incontinence. That tends to affect women a little bit more commonly than men. <laughs> Trying to get your 50 cents back, aren't you? <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> uh, let's break that into men and women because the treatment's going to be completely different. Sure. Let's deal with women because it's going to be a more common problem. Uh, there's what's called the sling surgery because the problem occurs because there's a lack of support for the urethra, the tube the, ur the woman urinates through. The short tube that goes the, from the bladder to the to outside. the outside world. And so that's where the problem is. That's correct. The, well, the problem is not the urethra. The problem is the support, which is damaged with childbirth or previous surgeries like a hysterectomy. Okay. So what we try and do is to restore the support for that bladder. Commonly, that's done with meshes. Which, but there's a big uproar about meshes. I personally don't do them. I feel that the complication rates are too high. So we use the woman's own tissue to support the bladder. That can be done as an outpatient procedure. It's not perfect, but it's a very safe, in the right hands, a very safe procedure. Now, for men, again, that's a completely different situation. We don't have sling surgery, at least not anything that works. So we have what's called the artificial urinary sphincter. It's been around since 1972. Nothing new about it. Mayo has the world's large experience dealing with this. And that's a device where there's a little cuff, you know, like a little blood pressure cuff that would wrap around the arm. Well, we have a tiny one that wraps around the urethra, the two the man urinates through. And so it's constantly tight. And when they want to go to the bathroom, they press a little pump that's actually right underneath the, the skin of the scrotum. The cuff opens up, they urinate, and it automatically closes. 
as far as something in all that I do in all of surgery at, at Mayo that makes the people the happiest, men or women, is the artificial sphincter. Because these guys come in totally incontinent or severely incontinent and being dry or close to it. So they're thrilled. And that's a relatively small surgery overnight stay in the hospital. Pretty amazing. So there is help for people. They just have to stop the embarrassment and ask about it. Absolutely. You know, some are embarrassed and some just think, well, there's no help. They've been told by their doctors there's nothing that can be done. Or more importantly, their mothers. Well, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, that's, that's a complicated one there. Uh, but yeah, there's things that can be done. It's just a matter of asking, get, trying to get help. And you said uh, when you uh, use the sling for a woman that you use the woman's own tissue. First of all, tell us why you were wise enough to never use mesh. And second of all, where you get the tissue. Well, I used mesh for incontinence for a little while. And then we just found the complications were high, unacceptable. It, it eroded into the urethra. Is that what happened? Eroded into the urethra or out from the vagina. And you've seen now with all these lawsuits going on of these major problems. So I swapped over several years ago to getting back to the the old way of doing it of using the individual's own tissue which is usually tissue that we get from the, the from the belly and then it's safe so we so don't that's have... a lining over top of a, an abdominal muscle correct it's yeah it's that tough lining that we take out a small segment only about a half inch by two and a half three inches mm-hmm. and uh, place it uh, through the vagina so we don't have all those problems of the chronic pain we see if meshes the erosion all those things we've been able to avoid that as an outpatient procedure takes about 45 minutes or so to do speaking of things to avoid you mentioned coffee but what are some other things that we eat or drink that might be things that we should avoid there is a very long list of everything under the sun that can irritate the bladder so some people are very sensitive to certain things it doesn't mean you eliminate everything that's on our list we have a list we have in clinic we hand out okay another thing that is a major problem is people drinking large amounts of fluid. We people come think, I've got to drink eight glasses, eight of, water glasses of water a day. Well, that drives <laughs> urologists crazy because guess what? They go to the bathroom all the time. <laughs> and so we actually do what's called avoiding diary where they list how much they drink and how much they urinate out, trying to get people to cut back. So the bottom line is it doesn't matter what kind of incontinence you have. It doesn't matter whether you're a male or a female you can fix it, or at least greatly improve it. Usually, yes. Again, there's certain individuals where we have, it can be very difficult, but yet there is hope available. That's why I always tell people, I can guarantee you we'll figure this thing out, and the odds are we'll make you better. And even if you're a male, you can help. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Our guest, urologist Dr. Dan Elliott, he's an expert on incontinence. Thanks so much for being with us. Really appreciate the great information. Sure, anytime. Coming up on Mayo Clinic Radio, norovirus infections, sometimes called winter vomiting virus. It seems to be more common this time of year. We'll have tips on reducing your risk of getting the unpleasant illness caused by this bug. And when does focused, thorough behavior cross the line and become obsessive-compulsive disorder? We'll learn about diagnosing and treating OCD. Do you have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send an email to mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. 
The Zika virus continues to make headlines as health officials alert the public about the potential risks of spreading the virus through blood donations. The American Association of Blood Banks is asking people to wait 28 days after travel to Mexico, the Caribbean, or Central or South America to donate blood. The goal is to help thwart a potential threat to blood recipients to make sure the nation's blood supply remains safe. The virus is dangerous for pregnant women because it's been linked to a birth defect called microcephaly. And in other news, let's talk about sleep. If you don't snooze, you lose. It's not the phrase you're used to hearing, but when it comes to sleep, it's true. Mayo Clinic pulmonologist Dr. Eric Olson likens the process to house cleaning in your head. It's clear that there must be many necessary functions going on in the brain at night because there's so many ramifications. In the short term, lack of sleep causes fatigue and moodiness. A long-term sleep deficit increases the risk for obesity, diabetes, high blood pressure, and more. So how much shut eye should be in your schedule? The National Sleep Foundation says, as a general rule, adults should aim for at least seven hours a night. Sleep suffers as a result of priorities given to things elsewhere in life. And sometimes that's just due to this perception that sleep is not a very productive time. It turns out it could be the most productive part of your day. And finally, let's talk about laughter. It's fun, good for your attitude, and your body. Mayo Clinic Dr. Mitsud says research shows laughter provides a good physical workout, generates mental relaxation, lowers blood pressure and pain, and even improves immunity. You're 30 times more likely to laugh in good company than alone. And further, the more you laugh with others rather than at someone, the greater the health benefit. I'm Vivian Williams, and for more health news, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shine. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, it goes by several names, including winter vomiting virus. Are you kidding me? <laughs> also, <laughs> the winter vomiting bug. At least those names give you a pretty good idea of what the illness is all about. Vomiting, along with diarrhea, low-grade fever, and abdominal pain and cramps. All of those are signs and symptoms of a, of a bug whose scientific name is norovirus. Many of us think of norovirus as the cause of outbreaks that sometimes occur on cruise ships, but norovirus is here among us on land as well, and winter seems a prime time for it to spread. Just what is norovirus and how can we keep from getting it? To answer these and other questions about the common illness, we're calling in a family medicine specialist, our friend Dr. Summer Allen. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Allen. Good to have you with us again. Thanks for having me. So the thing I have to ask is, is this what stomach flu is? When people say I have stomach flu, is are we renaming it so people don't get the flu confusion? This is a great question, and that was one that I wanted to point out. And we often hear patients will come in and tell me, well, I got my flu shot. So how did I get this bug? We've termed it often the stomach flu, I think because of the body aches, the low-grade fever, and how ill people feel. But I remind them that the influenza immunization is for a respiratory illness, and this is something different. And as you shared, most common cause is the norovirus. Uh, in our young children, although we're immunizing them now, we used to also see rotavirus as a contributing cause to this gastroenteritis or stomach bug or stomach flu. So norovirus is this vomiting virus. It's just a great street name for it. Yes, it's the most <laughs> common cause. Virus. Okay, very it. good. And so norovirus is the most common cause of acute gastroenteritis or inflammation causing vomiting, diarrhea. And you can get this more than once. There's no, there's no vaccine. There is no vaccine. And you can get this more than once. You can, because there are several different strains 
of the virus. Sort of like the common cold. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And we will most commonly see the vomiting actually occur in children, and the watery diarrhea will more commonly cause in adults. But they can still have both symptoms, but that's where more commonly you'll see those symptoms. So if norovirus is always with us, why is it that people seem to come down with it in the winter more than the summer? So it's to your guys' point of where we've seen now the complex world spread is with food contamination, uh, raw fruits and vegetables, this is where they encourage people to clean their fruits and vegetables well. Other thing is close quarters. And so that's where, think of in the wintertime, we tend to be inside more. And they talk about daycare centers and other places where it'll spread. And what I often uh, share with people, as well as the importance of proper hand washing and the fact that actually most disinfecting wipes, a lot of times unless they're alcohol-based or have a bleach component in them, will not touch the norovirus. So just the wipes that the schools are using and that we are using in our homes, those aren't touching this issue. No. That's the problem. We don't know that. And it spreads. it's a very hardy virus that can last for a few days in a contaminated area. So, again, if someone touches it afterwards, that that's how it will continue to spread. So it's real important if you've got a family member who's come down ill with it that you're washing hands and disinfecting things as best you can. It must be very contagious because it can rip through a cruise ship pretty quickly and make practically everybody Or an sick. elementary school, well, just saying. Have you had it? Really? Uh, yeah. Did they give it to mom and dad? That's what I want to so know. So far, not, don't make me answer that question. So far, so good. But that's probably, that's one of the problems that schools have. Exactly. It often, so within about 24 to 48 hours after exposure is when, if you've been exposed to it, that you'll develop your own symptoms. So again, the... That time period for different people, if they're shedding the virus, they're going to have spread it before they realize they have symptoms. And then the other thing is is that it's shown to shed in the uh, feces or stool for up to three days afterwards as well. So if you think of these kids are starting to feel better, they go back, and if they're in a daycare center, again, just making sure proper hand washing because it could still be spreading for days after. And so what's the best treatment if you end up with this vomiting virus or the norovirus? What should you be doing? Wait, let me ask before that, yeah. uh, is it important to know that it, you do, in fact, do have the noro, norovirus, and how do you make the diagnosis, and, and should do you need to? Great question. This is the challenge. It being a virus, it's not going to respond to antibiotics. It's not a bacterial infection. So there's no antibiotic we can give people. We certainly can test their stool to confirm that it's norovirus, but it doesn't really change the outcome or the management, which Tracy got to your next question of how do you manage it. We encourage people, again, the proper hand hygiene and, and stuff to try to help not spread it, but then it's just important to stay hydrated. For our adults and children, I really encourage fluid hydration. And in young children, I would use Pedialyte. Most of them can tolerate it fairly well, and it will replace them with electrolytes and with calories. In adults, they can use uh, different sports drinks if they want to, just to be careful with too much uh, sugar because the sugar can actually make the diarrhea worse. This was an interesting one, as I asked some of my colleagues when I was coming over here, is lactose or milk. It was something that I've cautioned people sometimes to be careful. People will develop sometimes a lactose intolerance for up to about two weeks following the stomach bug or vomiting virus and J bugs. So I caution people with dairy and lactose for up to two weeks afterwards just to help that their symptoms to improve. But not everybody has that same response. So like other viruses, uh, once you have it and you've gone through it, then are you immune to it? Or will, is it just a little Petri dish you can cheap? keep giving it to each other in the family or the school round and around and around. Yeah, so I wouldn't be, rest easy yet. No, yeah, you, you'd be immune to that strain of it. 
So that's, again, that's that challenging part. There are several different strains just like the common cold. So there's a good chance that you're going to potentially see it the next season or you could see it again that same season if you're exposed to a different strain. Now, you mentioned that you could make the di- confirm the diagnosis uh, by a stool sample. Mm-hmm. Can you? Is there also a blood test for this uh, virus? Uh, I'd have to double check to see if there is a PCR version uh, of it, but the stool testing is the one that can be offered, which most people aren't a super big fan if it's not going to change the management to bring in a stool sample. So So some physicians, if you catch the influenza early, prescribe Tamiflu, which is an antiviral. Is that specific for the flu or might it work for this norovirus? Great question. That's, That's specific for influenza so and for the influenza viruses, so not for this. So the flu has got a flu. You can get a flu shot in the fall. Get ready for that. Is there any talk about uh, some sort of shot that you could get for a norovirus? No, not with the amount of strains that are out there. Not that I'm aware of. But I certainly will double check with one of our infectious disease doctors to see. <laughs> so, and I, again, because it's self-limiting and for most people, although it makes us feel miserable, we're usually better within two to three days. It's not as dangerous as flu is. When there is a vaccine for the common cold, there will probably be a vaccine for norovirus, huh? <laughs> Good so there's point. A, well, there's a, what a hundred different strains that can cause the common cold. There's probably as many for norovirus. Exactly. Again, so what do you want patients to know? People that are worried about this at their school or their daycare, what what do they need to learn from this today? Your hand sanitizers, if it's not alcohol-based, make sure that you're washing your hands with soap and water and disinfecting things with a bleach-type disinfectant to make sure that things are well cleaned. Because, again, I think the hygiene is the proper way to not spread it. And then, again, to stay hydrated, push fluids. All right. Thanks to Summer Allen, Family Medicine Specialist, Mayo Clinic. Glad to have you with us. Thanks for having me. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, obsessive-compulsive disorder, when unreasonable thoughts and fears lead to repetitive behaviors. We'll have an update on OCD diagnosis and treatment. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Tracy McRae. OCD is a problem that people joke about and experience. We actually had a tweeted question that someone said, talk about OCD. So here to do that with us is Dr. Craig Sawchuk. Thanks for being back on the program with us. Great. Thank you for having me. All right. For me, really, OCD is a joke because people say, oh, I've got OCD. I have to keep checking if my keys are in my purse or I can't stop washing my hands. I have OCD. But for people who really suffer from it, it has to be terrible. Very much so. Uh, One of the things in uh, the field of of psychiatry and anxiety disorders uh, in particular. Um, While OCD, a true case of OCD, um, is fairly infrequent, uh, we think of maybe about 1% uh, of the population, a little bit more than that, the actual degree of impairment that goes along with OCD can be among the greatest of all the anxiety disorders. So it can be an incredibly impairing uh, condition. What does that mean, to be impaired by OCD? Yeah, impaired um, really means how much does it get in the way of your functioning? Mm -hmm. Doing your day-to-day activities, as um, you know, you described with um, being more concerned with washing your hands and, and checking. Doing it, you know, just for you know a, a couple of times for a few seconds, not a problem. When people are spending hours per day doing this, getting to the point, say, if it's more of a contamination-related concern, where they're having a very difficult time even getting out of their home, um, that's where we start to look at the impairment stacking up and the amount of, uh, of uh, you know, wages that people lose from not being able to work um, is absolutely huge. Uh, the number of folks that go in disability um, with true cases of OCD can also be quite staggering. I would have to imagine, though, that this is different for each person, too, because maybe one person's I 
can't get out of my house to even go to work is another person's. It takes me an hour to get out of the bathroom. I can't stop brushing my teeth or to even get into the garage. I mean, that is enough of an impairment that it bothers their life as well. Exactly, exactly. And I think one of the things to pay attention to with, with many flavors of OCD, there are a number of subcategories and subtypes, but in many ways, OCD um, is the amplification of ordinarily good or healthy behavior. So it's good uh, to be clean. It's good to be mm-hmm. sanitary. Um, OCD, a true clinical diagnosis, blows that completely out of proportion. Same thing, it's good to be um, safe and aware of your belongings and and checking, keeping your home safe. OCD blows that out of proportion. It's good to be organized, have things a little bit symmetrical, maybe a little bit perfectionistic. But when it gets blown out of proportion in terms of the amount of time spent during the day, how much it interferes with being able to deal with day-to-day things, that's when it becomes more problematic. It's coming back to me. It was a question that someone had specifically about children and OCD. Mm -hmm. Is is it different? Is OCD presented? differently in a child than it is in an adult? It's kind of yes and no. What we actually do see is that OCD, and, and this, you know, to tying in with with a PTSD um, conversation uh, we just had, is that OCD actually does have more of a genetic underpinning. So this tends to run stronger in families relative to other flavors of anxiety that we actually see. Um, the ages of onset with OCD, or at least OCD-like traits, um, can start to show up pretty early in life. Um, some you know, different studies have, have been out there that have identified this, but anywhere between 7 to 9 years old, um, 13 to 14, and 18 to 21 seem to be three time bands where this is much more likely to show up. Um, with kids, I think some of the difficulties that they have is maybe expressing what is their distress. Um, so their distress may come across more as crying being frustrated, um, uh, difficulty sleeping, but they may have difficulties really articulating what are the feared consequences. Mm -hmm. So in other words, they may feel very compelled to um, wash their hands, but not necessarily describe what are they trying to prevent from happening. Um, I had one patient that I worked with um, uh, as an adult, but as a kid, um, his mother noticed him repetitively going onto the diving board, jumping to the pool, getting back out again, going onto the diving board again and again and again, and she thought, He was having a good time, but then when she looked at him, he was crying the whole time going through this because he had to get the dive exactly right. Um, Mm. So, again, that sometimes they have difficulties being able to articulate what's going on, but some of the behavioral side um, may look very similar across time. One of the other tricky things about OCD um, is that what you do actually may morph over time as well. So, mm. like, let's just say it, uh, as, as a kid, more checking-related compulsions um, may be more characteristic. They go into uh, teenage years. That seems to go down. Now they're seemingly um, doing more contamination concerns and, and washing-related behaviors. Maybe that goes down a little bit. Now they're doing counting in early adulthood and more perfectionism, and as time goes along, maybe Maybe it morphs into intrusive thoughts of bad things happening to other people. So because just, that gets a little bit more socially acceptable, that you're not doing these things. And you're an adult now, and you're doing these things. If you can do something that's maybe a little more socially acceptable. Yeah, it's, it's possible. But it, but it's really interesting how these themes actually change over time. But they all mm. function the same way, that the obsessions um, are really the intrusive thoughts that come along and the compulsions, the things that they
they have to do, usually in a particular kind of way or over and over and over again, to either get things right or to prevent bad things from happening. So even though checking, say, at age 7 um, may look very different from contamination concerns, say, at age 30, it's the same person, but the function that the obsessions and the compulsions serve are exactly the same across time. I would have to imagine that self-medication must be a huge, is that a huge problem with people with OCD? If it bothers them that they're doing this, that coming up with drinking a lot of wine or taking some illegal drugs or, you know, whatever it is, is the way that they would cope with that. Yeah, and it's it's not uncommon. Once again, when we look at um, the amount of distress that they experience, uh, whether people are using substances to, to mute their brain, uh, to try to get them to sleep, or avoiding even getting into situations that would trigger their obsessions and compulsions, again, it totally makes sense why they would do it. Sure. And people don't do it because, you know, the wine tastes good. Mm-hmm. They do it because it makes them feel less bad. People that tr- have true obsessive compulsive disorder, they can't turn their mind off, and they mm-hmm. may very well know and intellectually know that these thoughts are irrational, but they can't control them. So it's not uncommon, as, as you mentioned, um, that they may be at risk for uh, use of substances, especially alcohol, to try to quiet their brain, to try to numb them, themselves out. And again, they're not drinking to feel good. They're mm-hmm. drinking to feel less bad. So what do you do then to help someone who has OCD if it's just that their brain will not shut off and tell them that it's okay? Yeah, there's really um, two evidence-based approaches. One is uh, pharmacotherapy, um, and I'll, I'll speak, you know, very limited uh, to pharmacotherapy because I'm a PhD rather than an MD. Um, but there are great um, types of treatments that are available uh, that address more of the serotonergic uh, functions of OCD. Remember, I mentioned earlier on it's a little bit more of a biologic uh, condition, more mm-hmm. of a genetic condition. Um, so there's great uh, resources, medication-wise, to help folks out with that. What we found relative to different types of of um, conditions is that higher doses of medication um, can actually help uh, that condition. It's just a matter of being able to tolerate that. Behavioral therapy-wise, exposure with response prevention is the number one most evidence-based treatment for that. So usually when there's more mild to moderate symptoms of of OCD, um, either uh, pharmacotherapy, typically with um, SSRI antidepressants like uh, Prozac and other medications like that can be helpful, or exposure with response prevention therapy, which is uh, part of cognitive behavioral therapy. As we get into more moderate to severe levels of presentation, um, then you can step up uh, the combination of, of treatment. And finally, what should a parent do that notices parents, if neither of the parents have ever had any OCD, but they think they see that in their child, what should they do? Once again, education is always the first line approach, uh, whether it be with their pediatrician, bringing this up with their pediatrician or their family medicine uh, provider. Um, pediatricians and family medicine providers are increasingly savvy about a range of psychological and psychiatric conditions, and also um, to developmentally normalize some of these things. It's not uncommon that people may at young ages do what looks like more obsessive compulsive things that don't go on to uh, develop problems. Um, there's again a great a uh, couple of great websites. Um, one is the Anxiety and Depression Disorders Association of America website, so www.adaa.org. Um, and then also and a great resource is the International Obsessive Compulsive Foundation. So the IOCF.org okay. uh, is a great website as well too. And that this is great for not only education, um, but then also both websites routinely update what are the best of the best uh, clinical practice standards. Excellent. Thanks so much, Dr. Sawchuk, for bringing us up to date on the different aspects of OCD for both adults and children. I appreciate your advice. Great. Thank you for having me.
And that's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or email us at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We may answer your question during an upcoming program. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. A writer for the program is Rich Dietman, our social media editor, Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.